decision you had to make in life. You know, big decision, not really sure what you were going to do. You know, a big decision like graduating, you know, from high school or college and having to figure out what's next. You know, big decisions in life. Well, just a couple of things I want to encourage you with. If you're in the middle of a big decision, whether you're a graduate or someone else, if you have a big decision right now, here's what I would encourage you to do. Just be sure you make a decision. Be sure you make a decision. As one philosopher says, don't let your decision-making skills resemble a squirrel crossing the street. Right? Don't, don't be scatterbrained. Just, just make a decision. Look for that decision. Second, don't ever underestimate the possibilities in life. Don't ever underestimate the opportunities in life. George W. Bush was the 43rd president of the United States. He is known for his self-deprecation, meaning he knows how to make fun of himself. And in 2015, he was speaking at the graduation ceremony at Southern Methodist University. And this is what he said. To those of you who received honors, awards, and distinctions, I say, well done. And to the C students, I say, you too can be president of the United States. So don't hem and haul. Don't bob and weave. Don't popcorn and ketchup. Don't do anything outside of making decisions. Make decisions. And don't underestimate the opportunities and the possibilities that you have in life. In fact, there is a way for you to make your opportunities great. In a sense, there is a way that you can make great decisions consistently in life. Well, how in the world can you do that? Well, you have to pursue greatness. What does that mean? Well, let's see if we can find out. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 46. The disciples of Jesus were having a heated argument one day, and we find beginning in verse 46, these words, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Who is the greatest? That was the argument they were having. Now, this is a very interesting argument for this moment in history. And I'll tell you why in just a second, but let's see if we can kind of step into it a little bit. What is your dream car? Your dream car, your dream truck, your dream motorcycle, whatever it is. What, what is your dream ride? Okay, got it in your head? Now, imagine that tomorrow you win that dream ride. You, you get it. And, in addition, you also win a lifetime of free food at the International House of Pancakes. All right? Free ride, lifetime free food, International House of Pancakes. All right? I mean, there's nothing that can stack up to that prize, right? You knew it was coming. So you got your dream ride. You've got free vittles for life. On the next morning, are you going to ride a skateboard to the gas station to get a breakfast burrito that's been under the heat lamp for a week? No. <laughs> and if you, if you do, then we're worried about you. No, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to get in your new wheels, and you're going to go to IHOP, and you're going to get the Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity combo with two strips of bacon because the only thing better than two strips of bacon is 22 strips of bacon, right? I mean, you're, you're going to get the combo. You're going to have a good meal, and you're going to have a good ride. Well, it wasn't the IHOP of Nazareth, but Peter, James, and John had just had a pretty incredible moment. They had been up on a mountain with Jesus. 
And while they were up on the mountain, something that's really unexplainable, they, they saw Jesus. They, they caught this glimpse of his glory, his, his majesty, this, this radiance of his divinity. They saw something they couldn't explain. And they also saw Moses and Elijah. So, you know, I mean, just a typical day on the mountain where you see two superheroes who'd been in heaven for 850 years. You know, no big whoop. Just a thing. So Jesus and Peter, James, and John, they come down off the mountain. They join up with the other disciples. And then the next day, after this incredible day, the next day, Jesus miraculously heals a boy that had a destructive, evil, strong demon. He cast a demon out of this boy. So you have shiny Jesus up on the mountain, full of radiance and glory. And then right after that, you got mighty Jesus having authority over everything in the universe, including demons inside of a boy. And in the middle of all of that, that's the moment that the disciples said, hey, wonder which one of us is the greatest. Wonder which one of us is the greatest. Bust their hearts. I mean, that's like riding your skateboard to the gas station for a week old burrito. It doesn't make any sense. That was the discussion. I mean, you'd think at least one of them would say, hey, you know, I'm spitballing here, but maybe Jesus is the greatest. I don't know, could be wrong. Maybe it's Jesus. But they missed it. How? How could they miss it? How could they miss the magnitude of the majesty of Jesus? How could they miss the radiance of Jesus? How could they miss the greatness of the Son of God? How could they end up in an argument about themselves in that moment. How? Well, maybe it was jealousy. Maybe it was just pure jealousy. Maybe, maybe Peter was bragging about being up on the mountain. Oh, yeah, we were up on the mountain. I was there, yeah. I got Elijah's autograph. I'm getting ready to post my selfie with Moses. Man, I was there. And the other guys are like, well, hang on, wait a minute. Why weren't we there? Why didn't Jesus take us? Why were we left out of Mountain Palooza? Why were we left down here? What? What happened? Why are we left out? Maybe the disciples look around and they were a little jealous. Or maybe there was a lust for power. Maybe that's why they ended up in this argument, because there was a lust for power. Look, the disciples were no different than anyone else. Everybody in the world heard about this Messiah, and they thought, oh, this is great. The, the Messiah, he's going to come. He's going to be this great king. He's going to make everything right. He's going to come and, and end the Roman Empire. He's going to give us freedom. He's going to start this new kingdom. Everything is going to be great. Everything is going to be fantastic. The disciples thought nothing different than anyone else. And now here they are on the heels of this amazing thing, this, this radiance of Jesus, this mountaintop experience unlike any mountaintop experience. And so they're now looking at the situation. They see Jesus heal this boy, and they go, well, okay, yeah, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. Now everything's coming together. Jesus is breaking out of his shell. He's starting to do his thing. This is what we've been waiting for. And now here come our promotions. Maybe it's a lust for power. Maybe it's a, a lust for position. Maybe they started thinking, hey, he's going to be in charge. Who's going to be starting quarterback? Who's going to get the corner office? Who's going to be the chairman of the board? 
And their, their minds start chasing all these different directions in this moment of excitement. So maybe their argument started because they had this sudden lust for power and position for someone to be in charge and it, for it to be them. It might have been lust for power. It might have been a, a desire for special privileges to be on the inn. Or it could have been jealousy. It could have been one of those two things. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, all arguments have the same reasoning behind them. All arguments. And here's the reasoning. In the New Testament, James says this in James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Arguments start because somebody's not getting their way. Doesn't matter where the argument is. At home, at work, at church, with the disciples of Jesus, it doesn't matter. Anywhere and everywhere we go, the question is being asked all the time, hey, who's the greatest? You know, who's the greatest? My way is better. My music is better. My plan is better. My politics are better. My theology is better. My Italian cream cake is better. Now, I wouldn't mind being the judge of that, so you can drop off your entries in my office anytime this week, and we'll decide who has the best Italian cream cake. No problem. I'll, I'll be in charge of that. These were grown men. <laughs> these, these were grown people arguing about how important they were. They were arguing about who was the most important. You know what's great, though? I am so glad that today, when we turn on the TV, when we listen to talk radio, when we go to our political websites, when we go to church meetings, we never see anything like this ever, right? We never see anybody trying to say that they're the greatest or they're the most important or their ideas are the way to go. We never see that, right? Grown men, who, by the way, were the first leaders of the church. These were the first Christian leaders, and they were arguing about which one of them should be in charge. You know, you think after 2,000 years we would have learned a lesson, but, but we really haven't, have we? We haven't learned the lesson from the White House to the State House to the Church House to your house. We're still arguing about getting our way. It's the pattern of sin. It's the pattern of the world. Wouldn't it be great to break the pattern? Now, somebody might say this. Look, I have never told anyone that I'm the greatest. Okay? Don't believe the lie that just because you don't say something out loud that it's not true. See, when we look at our lives, we'll see this concept of wanting to be the greatest. We could look at home. The way being the greatest sounds at home, it sounds like this. Well, why do I have to take out the trash? Well, why did she get new shoes? Why is it that he gets to go to the beach? And why does she get to go to the lake? And why does he get to go golfing? Or claim to be greatest at school sounds like this. Why does she like him? Why, why does he always make the A's? Why does she always get picked? Why am I always riding the bench? 
down at our local voting precinct, you know what the greatest sounds like? It sounds like this. Why can't the Democrats just realize that they're crazy? And why can't the Republicans just chill for a minute? That's what the greatest sounds like there. And in church, what's the greatest sound like at church? What church, it, it sounds like this. Well, why don't they sing the music that I like? Why, why are they in charge of that? How come I haven't been asked to be a teacher? Don't they know how long we've been members? Anywhere and everywhere we go, home, work, church, school, in the line at the grocery store, who is the greatest is always around. It's, it's around us and sometimes it's in our hearts and in our minds. This question of who is the greatest and who is the greatest is just another way of saying that we are being self-serving and self-centered. We do not, des- we desire and we don't have, so we try to get whatever the get might be. So selfish, self-centered, and self-serving. That's, that's how we are, but here's the deal. We're in good company because that's exactly what's happening with the disciples of Jesus. They're in this argument about who the greatest is. But something interesting happens in the middle of the argument. Verse 47. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart. (laughs) Woo-woo. Jesus heard them. Jesus wasn't in the conversation with them. They they weren't having this argument with Jesus. Maybe they had stepped into the the local coffee joint and they were sitting around having coffee and, and talking all this out. And Jesus was still out in the treats in the street, you know, healing people, but but they weren't all in the conversation together, but Jesus still knew what was going on. He wasn't that far away. He heard them arguing over who was the greatest, and how did he respond? Did he step up and and stomp his foot down and and give them a lecture? Did he do this kind of power pout where he just walked out in front of them, away from them, and, and wouldn't have anything to do with them the rest of the day? Did he tell him just to go back home? He'd find some better disciples. No, that's not what he did at all. What did he do? Look at the next part of verse 47. But Jesus took a child and stood him by his side. Jesus was going to use this argument, this moment of selfishness, to help them see a picture of God's truth. And the way he's going to do that is to bring a child to come up and stand next to him. Now, at first glance, this doesn't seem to be a really big deal, right? I mean, there are always families around Jesus. There are always kids around Jesus. I mean, Jesus was gregarious. Jesus was kind and encouraging and helpful and healing. Anybody of any age would want to hang around with Jesus. So it's not strange that there would be a child in the midst of this conversation. But think about how we think about kids in these days. You know one of the quickest ways that you can make somebody really angry? say something bad about their kids or grandkids, right? I mean, that'll work, you know? You'll get them angry really fast, you know? Likewise, if you want to appeal to someone, if you want to win somebody over, say something good about their kids or their grandkids, right? I mean, it has an impact immediately. Neither one of those attitudes existed in the ancient world. In the time that Jesus lived, children were looked down upon. The notion that it's okay if they're seen, but they shouldn't be heard. So the picture that Jesus is painting here is not accidental. On purpose, he's bringing a child to come and stand next to him while they are talking about 
who the greatest is, who's the most important, who should be clapped for the most. In that conversation, Jesus brings a child up next to him. Somebody has said that you can tell how much a person values life by how they treat children. So, how do you treat kids? What's your attitude toward kids? Because our attitude toward kids, according to Jesus, reflects our attitude toward life and really our attitude even beyond that. What does that mean, beyond that? Well, Jesus is going to tell us. Why did Jesus bring that kid to come stand next to him? Listen to what he says in verse 48. And Jesus said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. You know what's great about little kids? They don't care who you are. (laughs) They don't. They don't care about your title. They don't care about your position. They don't care about your accomplishments. They don't care about your awards or your rewards. They just don't care about all the things that we make the most important. And you know why they don't care? They don't care because the greatest person to a kid is the person who has some answers to questions like this. Hey, can you change my diaper? Can you get me some juice? Can you score me some ice cream? Do you have any toys in that bag? See, the greatest person to a child is the person in that moment that can love them, encourage them, be kind to them, meet some need for them. Little kids don't look for status. They don't look for rank. They don't play the stock market. They don't bring anything to the table when it comes to your mortgage. They don't. They don't bring anything to the table when it comes to your retirement account. No, little kids don't bring things. They need things. William Barclay said this, And so Jesus is saying, If a man welcomes the poor, ordinary people, the people who have no influence, no wealth, no power, the people who need things done for them, then he's welcoming me. And more than that, he's welcoming God. So, there's a question for your heart and my heart. How are you at welcoming God? How are you at welcoming Jesus? How are you in listening to these words from Jesus? Because Jesus said that the way you treat children is a direct picture of of whether you welcome God. That's kind of strong. Yesterday, our 411 ministry ministered to some special needs kids. Took them out to Eudora Farms to see the animals and grilled out some burgers for them here at the church. What they did, some of our adults and some of our youth, they served some people who, according to Barclay, have no influence, no wealth, no power, and need That means yesterday, our church, through those people, for those families, welcomed God. They received Jesus. How are you at receiving Jesus? How are you at welcoming God? How are you in your relationship with kids, or at the very least in your attitude with kids, but not just kids, 
but folks who are in need. Listen to Barclay's thought in reverse, or maybe we could say the opposite. If you refuse to welcome the poor, if you refuse to welcome ordinary people, the people who have no influence, no wealth, no power, the people who need things done for them, then you are not welcoming Jesus. And more than that, you are not welcoming God. Think about the kind of people that that Jesus hung out with. Think about the kind of people that stood next to Jesus. Lepers, people possessed with demons, the blind, the lame, the deaf, the crippled, pagans, non-Jews, the homeless, prostitutes, children. Those were people that stood next to Jesus. People that Jesus went and stood next to and helped them try to find God, directed them toward God, welcomed them to God. Someone used your dinner table as a way to help us think about this attitude of life. Imagine that you get a call from one of the disciples of Jesus. Let's go with Bartholomew. We don't talk about him a whole lot. Let's just say that Bart is the advance man for Jesus. Okay? He's the guy that sets up all the plans for the next village that they're going into. And Bart gives you a call and says, Hey, Jesus would like to come have dinner at your house on Friday night. Now, what are you going to do? You're going to make the place spick and span, right? You're going to pull out the china and the, and the nice stemware. You're going to maybe go to the community symphony and, and hire some college students to come play some dinner music for you. You might even break out the fresh, rich Colombian coffee, you know? I mean, you might really make it happen. You might make a great meal yourself, or you might have the best caterer in town come in and put on a marvelous spread, but you are going to do it up. You're going to do everything you can to to make that night good and helpful and special. So Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, if you guys aren't willing to go to that same kind of trouble for a bratty toddler or an acne-faced teenager or any other person on the planet that does nothing for your bottom line, any other person on the planet that can't repay you, that can't give you a shout-out on social media, that can't do anything to bring you attention, if you can't do that for anyone then Jesus says, you are showing that you have not received me. That's such a strong statement. You would think that that Jesus would pat it a little bit, but he doesn't. They were arguing about who was most important. They were arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus said, look, if this argument is about you having position." about you being recognized, about you having a plaque somewhere, about your name getting printed somewhere, about people clapping for you somewhere. If this is about you getting recognition, then you are only proving that you don't know me. You're only proving that you haven't received me, that you aren't welcoming God. So graduates, you are in a season of life where maybe you're thinking, Man, what am I going to do with my life? You're, you're not thinking about being the greatest. You, know, you just want a job. You know? You're not thinking about being the most important. You're, you're just hoping something works out, that you get into a college, that you get a job, that something good happens. 
You're just thinking, man, what am I going to do with my life? To encourage some of you graduates, <laughs> some of the rest of us are still in that conversation too, right? There's a lot of adults asking that same question. Now, what we'd love to hear you say is, what does God want me to do with my life? And that question, I have an answer for you. I can't tell you where to go to school or, or where to work or, or who to marry or what kind of car to buy. I can't tell you, skip the week old burrito, okay? Just go to IHOP. But if you're looking for an answer to the question, what does God want me to do? I got an answer for that. Here's what God wants you to do. He wants you to stand next to Jesus. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to stand next to Jesus and he wants you to follow the lead Jesus. So how does Jesus lead? What does the leadership of Jesus look like? This is what the leadership of Jesus looks like. Be kind. Be fair. Treat other people the same way that you want to be treated. Love other people the same way that you want to be loved. Don't think too highly of yourself. And make God the most important focus of your life. That's what God wants you to do. Without a doubt, that's what God wants you to do. Now, let's circle back to the first question. What does it mean to pursue greatness? What does pursuing greatness look like? When you think of the great men and women of the world, people who've done great and wonderful things on this earth as leaders or as servants, when we get a picture of all of that, how do we whittle down an answer to the question, what does it mean to pursue greatness? Well, we have to have this caveat. You can be one of the greatest leaders this world has ever known and step into eternity, separated from all that is good and great being a leader here is fantastic, but it's partial. It's not eternal. So when we say, how do you pursue true greatness? We cannot just look at the men and women who have led well on this earth. We have to look at the one that has led well on earth and leads perfectly on earth and leads perfectly in eternity. So with that in mind, how do you pursue greatness? Here's how. Stand next to Jesus and follow his lead. Stand next to Jesus and follow his lead.